Today's show is sponsored by Noom. Out with the old habits and in with the new. Sign up for your free trial today at noom.com slash real life. And today's show is also sponsored by Brooklyn and get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you go to brooklinen.com and use the promo code real at checkout. And lastly, today's show is also sponsored by Legacy Box. There's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories. Go to legacybox.com slash love to get 40% off your first order. Hey guys, Jeff here. Every once in a while, you guys know I get on a plane and I go speak somewhere at conferences and it's fun and me and Alyssa love doing it when we do it together or when I do it solo. And I thought what I'd start doing is every once in a while when I speak, I would toss that keynote or that talk up here on the podcast for you guys to hear in hopes that it's an encouragement. This one from today is a conference I was at a couple months ago at New Spring Church in South Carolina. Great, amazing family and friends and people and loved the conference. And what I talk about is family rhythms or rhythms in general, because I think it's relevant for those of you listening that don't have kids um, or maybe not are even married. Uh, and I talk about the establishment of daily, weekly, yearly rituals and habits in your life in a rhythmic way. Um, it was fun. It was a blast. I hope it's an encouragement. One precursor. Uh, I do, I'm writing stuff on kind of like a smart board during the talk. So that'll, you'll kind of hear me. You don't need to know the illustrations though. In some sense, uh, you should be able to get it just through audio. And then two, uh, there was a lot of technical difficulties with the smart board. So you'll hear on this talk, I just was having fun and making jokes about like it was failing and turning off and turning on and just being kind of funny. Uh, and so, uh, I tried to just roll with it, but you'll hear a couple of those moments in the talk as well. But I hope it encourages you. Here it is. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week, real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had. Some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts. And don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Awesome. How you guys doing? We doing good? Awesome. I'm excited to be with you guys. Um, just to prep you, this is about to be one of the most unconventional marriage conference messages you ever have probably heard, okay? So I'm just giving you a warning because it might go off into left field and you'd be like, what's going on? I warned you. I warned you, okay? Um, and then secondly, what I want to talk about and what I want to zoom in on this morning is basically what I consider, I think, one of the biggest blind spots specifically to Western evangelical marriages, meaning people in the Western world, um, philosophically speaking, but also people that love the Lord in the West. And that is what I like to call our blind spot being rhythms and story. I think we severely lack rhythm, and I'm gonna talk about this in a second, and we severely lack story or narrative. Can everyone say rhythm? And everyone say story. So this is what I wanna talk about with our time together and this is basically what I wanna dig into because I know for me in our marriage and also in our community, even with our mentors above us, this has been one of the things that's been most life-giving as we have been pursuing this together as a community and seen a lot of fruit. And so I kinda of wanna unpack some of that and just get going. So if you're taking notes, um, you can flip over to Genesis 1 um, and we'll be flipping all throughout but I'll also be going some other places. Um, and so just go ahead and get ready because it'll be fun. I'm ADHD, anyone else? If you can't already tell. And I had two cups of coffee, fun, right? Let's do it, let's do it. Brad, I went for a third and Brad was like, no, don't do that. Okay, um, <laughs> rhythms and story. And what I mean by rhythms is daily, weekly, and yearly rhythms 
and things that you do in a very consistent basis that inject your life with meaning or story. They kind of dance together, and we'll talk about that in a second. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about our, 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 cultural's con- our culture's concept of time. I know that's weird, but I do want to start there because I think we are so already kind of 10 steps down the wrong direction, and a lot of it actually has to do with how we actually see time. So I want to go through three different kind of frameworks of how we see that and what that can actually do for us. So there's kind of two different ways that we look at time, and then what I'll call the biblical model of time, okay? So if you're taking notes, let's start with the east, the eastern view of time. So let's go, oh, there we go, eastern view of time, okay? Now, the eastern view of time is kind of nothing more than a circle, right? This is where we get reincarnation. We get some particular philosophical frameworks in Buddhism and Hinduism. It's basically a version of time that just kind of goes in a circle. You're just a cog in a wheel, and basically your life is meaningless. You just come back again, do it over again, do it over again. It's kind of Groundhog's Day, right? Time is nothing more than a circle. And this leads to what I like to call passive existing. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, left-handed vibes. Okay, there we go. Is anyone, is anyone else left-handed, right? Where you kind of like smother your stuff and you cover it and it's just like I'm touching all these buttons. Um, passive existing, right? It's, it's meaningless, right? And so now that's not really us and so we're not gonna stay there. But what a lot of us are in is what I like to call the Western view of time. And this is more like a straight linear line, right? And this we resonate with because all of us believe that life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But in the macro way, certainly, what this does is this creates almost kind of a life of endless doing, right? Where we believe time is nothing more than just continually moving forward. There's something propelling us and we have to do more, be more, get more. There's no cycle, there's no season, there's no rhythm. It's just literally going until you die. This is pretty much the picture of burnout, is it not? Which is all, by by the way, why in the West we pretty much struggle with that more than anyone else. And so, like I mentioned with the Western view, this leads to endless doing, right? You just, you go without ceasing, you burn out, you're tired, you're anxious, you're overwhelmed, which those all sound like words that pretty much all of us feel, or at least certainly our culture does, right? And so again, this doesn't seem to be the correct version of time, which by the way, fascinating, do you know this version of time actually was kind of invented around 1800s? Like this isn't just how, this, like people didn't always think like this. I don't have time for this, but if you wanna Google Ruth Belleville, if you wanna write that down, she's actually one of the inventors of the modernization of time. Like literally all these trains started to crash together because time was relative. And so tra- transportation became global. And so they actually started transporting outside of their local regions and everyone started crashing because they didn't have an actual local, I mean, they didn't have an actual global time that everyone could operate on. And so Ruth would actually go to Greenwich Observatory, which is why we also have Greenwich time zone, which is where the first time zone we have out of the 24, by the way. Why am I, Google it, I can't keep doing this. Okay, let's go. I was like, I literally, it's not in my notes. I can't do that, I don't have time for that. Okay, Google it, it's fascinating, okay? Um, The Bible though, the Bible, okay. So the Bible to me seems to kind of be very interesting and kind of systematically go against both of these views of time. And it's what I like to call a spiral. Oh no, oh no, okay, let's try that over. A spiral that still does certainly go forward, right? And so this is what I like to call the biblical view of time. Now, this seems to be a lot more like what the scriptures are doing, right? There's a dance, there's a cadence to it that is going forward. God clearly is living and creating and doing and being us in a chronological time frame, but it seems to be very rhythmic and come back in seasonal ways, in rhythmic ways, in a daily, weekly, and yearly way. And this leads to what I like to call progressive being, And this is a lot more, and this is why I want to start here, of where we need to actually ask, is our marriage actually living in this version of time, right? 
If you're burnt out, if you're tired, if you're overwhelmed, I can guarantee you, you're probably, all, probably somewhere right here, right? That actually come back to seasonal and things that live in a cadence. Here's another way to put it. We aren't stewarding a life in the Bible and as image bearers of God that have a beginning, middle, and an end, but we're actually stewarding a series of prescribed rhythms that repeat over and over again until we die and we get to improve them incrementally over time. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus is get a little bit better every single day and come back in a daily, weekly, and yearly way. And if you don't believe me, literally this is hidden in plain sight in the scripture. Genesis says this for the daily rhythm. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, Genesis 1.5, a couple verses later, there was evening and there was morning the second day, Genesis 1.8, there was evening and there was morning the third day, Genesis 1.13, and obviously you get the pattern, it goes on and on and on. That God clearly wanted us, like he didn't have to do that. He could have just created the days, but he literally bookended every single day with, here is what it is. It's an evening and it's a morning, live in the rhythm. By the way, how does the day actually start according to God's timetable? Night, fascinating, right? That we actually have to rest and we actually have to, that, like God actually starts when we're sleeping. And that there's actually, again, this anchoring and this resting of us in God as a providential, amazing king creator, and then we can live from that, right? Same thing with the weekly rhythm. What does it say in scripture? And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in all of creation, Genesis 2. And again, notice the same thing. The Sabbath day was day seven for God. What day was it for Adam? Number one. Isn't that fascinating? See, we always look at it from God's perspective, end of the week. But Adam, as the crowning act of creation, then wakes up into the Sabbath and his first full day as an image bearer of God is what? God's day of celebration and delight and rest and beauty. What's up, guys? I want to take a quick break and tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Noom. You guys have heard me talk about Noom before. Something that I've really cared about this last year is my own nutrition, my own fitness, and my own health. And Noom has actually helped me uh, a ton with that. I love it. And it's even if you've never heard of it or haven't tried it, maybe it's time to try something different. And so I would say try Noom. Check it out. Um, different results call for different approaches. Um, and it's all about learning and optimizing uh, how you actually live in a healthy, healthy rhythm with your body and with fitness and with working out that's sustainable for you. You get to build a new you and better habits, which I really liked. Um, and you have personalized training and your own support team for less than the price of a single appointment, which is what I also really liked. Um, and if you care about nutrition, they have a whole sphere in there that helps you out with food um, and portion sizes and what kind of foods mean what. And it's, it's, it's really, really cool. So I've actually, like I said, made uh, certain goals for me in regards to what I want to achieve and what I kind of want to uh, lift and how I want to exercise. And Noom has helped me meet those goals. They've helped me achieve those goals. Um, I actually get up pretty early and go work out just so I can kind of not take a time away from the family. And they've helped me uh, with that. And uh, the interactions with the goal specialist and the new members through the app are really cool. The app is really, really cool. You guys got to check it out. Um, so we want to hook you guys up. So it's designed for results. And like they like to say, it's out with the old habits, in with the new. So you can sign up for your free trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M.com slash real life. Again, that's Noom.com slash real life to start your trial today. Noom.com slash real life. What if we were actually people that sat in that, rested in that, and then tried to go work? Then tried to actually go do our mandate. Then tried to actually go on mission with our marriage. But you gotta sit in God's delight and goodness and rest first. You have to. And it starts there 
all the way. And then there's the yearly rhythm. Clearly, you can go to Leviticus 23. I don't have time to summarize the whole chapter, but fascinating chapter, by the way. Go ahead and read it when you have time later. But it's clear from Leviticus 23 where we get all the biblical holidays, all the mandates for season, all the mandates for agriculture, that God clearly designed particular parts of the story to be told in particular parts of the year, and we should be and are seasonal creatures. Do you actually believe that? And here's what I'm trying to say with this little intro. Clearly, God is playing a music in the universe. Clearly. There's clearly a rhythm in the universe, right? Because what is rhythm? Rhythm in a music, it hits on the same exact note and beat every time, right? You don't get it. It's not relative. You don't get to pick and choose. What's your job? To submit to the music. Your job is to learn to dance. Your job is to actually pay attention and live underneath the music, what does it look like when someone's basically like, like here, here's the thing, you can dance however you want, but how dumb does that look if you're not dancing in rhythm, right? You've seen that, usually at a wedding or a dance, usually the white guy, amen, Am I, can I say that? Okay, um, it's like, no, bro, that, you can stop, you can stop. You can be creative in your own dancing capacity, but how? In the rhythm, in the rhythm, listening to the music, and God has clearly woven music into the universe. Our job is to dance to it. You don't get to make up the tempo, and you can pick your special dance moves, if I like to say, but you still have to submit to the music, not make up music. And so many of us, with our life, it's fascinating how we think that we can just kind of do whatever we want and however we want. No, no, no. There is a shalom cadence that we can submit to for our blessing, or we can not to for our peril. It's your choice. It's your choice. Um, now, what I want to talk about kind of for some time we have Rest with us is there's two groups that I've kind of studied that are really interesting that have done this really, really well still in the West. Meaning there's a lot of people that have lost this where people like, here's the truth of the matter. We are one of the most meaningless cultures in all of human history. Do you realize that? Like that was actually the goal of the enlightenment is to suck out all meaning. Get rid of it. Take it away. Church? No, that's okay. Community? No, that's okay. The neighborhood store where you actually maybe go shop at the same place and don't just go where it's always cheapest and Amazon? Oh, too much conviction right there. Okay. Um, right? Like we actually would submit to each other in community, like in a neighborhood, in church. And it's fascinating, by the way, that's why politics are so vitriolic now, because everything has collapsed on that one institution. We're trying to get from that what we were trying to get from everything else 200 years ago. So we try to suck out all meaning, or we have sucked out basically all meaning, and we have nothing to hang our hat on anymore. Our lives are meaningless, for lack of a better term, in the West. Like we, we literally, that was our goal. That was what we've been trying, that's what we've been trying to do. Why? Because it takes away limits also, and that's what we really want. We don't want to be limited. That's the highest ideal in our culture. Don't put any limits on me, right? Whether that's sleep, whether that's work, whether that's what I eat. Like you do know certain vegetables only grow certain types of the year, right? Even though we can buy them any time during the year, that's, right? That's our ideal, is to vacuum out and suck out basically all limits, which then at the same time takes out all meaning. There's two groups, though, that have kind of rebutted against this and resisted this, I think, really well. And that's what I want to talk about, kind of look at them as a case study. And that's the Jewish people. I'll write that up here real quick. And the Amish. And I want to look at these two people groups, or these two cultures, because I think they do a very, very good job of still finding meaning and depth and richness in rhythms at the table in a daily, weekly, yearly way. And I think we actually, in a humble way, can learn a lot from them. Now, and they wrap all their rhythms around a story, which is really, really beautiful. Can we go next slide? Oh, 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 is that just like, I don't know. What are we going on here? Am I, am I ruining it? Okay, we'll just try to, am I good? Am I good? I'm trying to go to a next, there, we, oh, thank you. Did someone do that? Thank you, Yahweh, appreciate it. Okay, um, <laughs> and so, was it him? Was it production? We don't know, okay. But 
here's what's interesting. So the Amish are people that do this very, very well. Um, and there's a couple things they, they, they do really, really well. And here's what they do. Does anyone, there's three books that actually are required in every Amish home. You can read more, you can have more, you can do more. But there's three books that meaning like you have to have that if you're a kind of a, a, a observant Amish person and an observ, observant Amish family. Does anyone know? The first one's easy. Bible, right? The second one, does anyone know? Martyr's Mirror. Do you guys know what that is? So that's basically their version of their Fox Book of Martyrs. So it basically tells the story, it connects them deeply to their past of all the persecuted Amish people in the past. And then their third one is called the Ausbund, which is, what is that, German, I think? I don't know. Um, I went to public school. Okay, um, and who's bilingual anyways in German? Not me, anyone? Okay. Um, but it's basically their hymnal, which then provides them sound, a soundtrack and hymns for them to sing. Now, these three books, really funny question, where are these all three administered? Meaning when an Amish person engages with those three books, almost primarily where's the location every single time? Is it at a Sunday service? Is it in their bedroom during their quiet time? Where is it? In the home. Where in the home? Dinner table. Okay, so three books primarily. And what do you, who, when do you eat dinner? Every day, right? And it's already a natural rhythm or else you die. And so it seems to me like Amish people have done a really beautiful job of bringing truth, the scriptures, Martyr Mirror, Martyr's Mirror, a story, and then the Ausbund, a soundtrack. So this fully fleshed out, beautiful rhythm and narrative and truth, where? To their daily ritual and rhythm so that they actually get it infused to them every single day for their entire life. So many of us, we try to go get our meeting two hours on a, our, our meaning two hours on a Sunday. That's not gonna cut it. It's great and it's a blessing, but that's not going to cut it. And so they, if, you're, if you're in this room, you have to realize the table is one of the most central places that you can worship Jesus at. And he obviously clearly showed that too when he talked about the kingdom of God. He always used language of what? It's a dinner, it's a feast, it's a wedding. All those involve tables. All those involve tables. And then that's their daily rhythm, right? Where the patriarch of the family very much in a beautiful way leads and casts a vision for the family that then people understand why they're here, what they're here for, and they get the big questions answered for them. And they're being immersed and soaked in a story together as a married couple and as a family, and they're doing it every single day. So they fulfill that daily rhythm. And then clearly we know with Amish, they fulfill the weekly rhythm very well. They're still very agricultural and agrarian in nature. And so they do a very good job of that living within the weekly cadence and they take a very hard Sabbath on Sunday. And by the way, they do their church services where? Do you know where? At the table, in the home, which is fascinating, every other week. And then every other week on top of that, they then gather collectively as the saints. And then clearly we know also that they live within the yearly rhythm because again, they're agrarian by nature and so they grieve in certain periods, they celebrate in certain periods, they harvest in certain periods and all these different things. And I'm not saying we need to go farm but I'm saying there's something to learn there. And here's why. With all that I just said, do you guys know what the retention rate is of Amish kids retaining the faith? Meaning, if you grow up in an Amish home, what's the percentage that when you leave as an adult, you will remain Amish? Does anyone want to take a guess? It's very high. Does anyone want to say it out? 95 to 97%. That's fascinating for a couple reasons. Why? Because usually don't we say in our culture that the thing that's really gonna make people run away is if we're extra conservative and have a bunch of things and rules and all that? I don't know any people that are more conservative than Amish, right? And they seem to be staying. So I don't think that's it. 
I don't think that's it. What is it that they're doing? I even heard a joke with a pastor say that basically they leave so little, meaning like they disciple themselves so well, they pass it on so well generationally and for their own legacy that literally if someone leaves, they make a TV show about it. <laughs> that's when you know you're doing pretty good, right? That's when you know you're doing pretty good is if the people that leave actually get put on prime dime television. Now let's take the Jewish people. Let's move on to them. And actually let's start with uh, the stat of them too. Does anyone know? The retention rate of Jewish people, meaning if they, again, grow up in a Jewish home, learn the Torah, learn the scriptures, they are Jewish, and then they go into adulthood, what's the percentage that they will remain Jewish as a practicing, observant person? It's the exact same. It's the exact same. 95 to 97%. Here's where this gets really depressing. Does anyone know the Western evangelical number? And yes, this has been studied and proven over and over again. You barn it, you can go Google it and buy some other people. What's the number for us? Western evangelicals, Christians, Protestants, what's the number for us? What's our rate of retention? Meaning we raise our kid for 18 years, telling them about Jesus, opening up the scriptures, doing all these things. What's the rate? 20%. Meaning... For almost two decades, we disciple, we raise up, we teach, we preach, we give the scriptures, we send them to Sunday school, we do all these different things. Eight out of 10 still turn 18 and say, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. Can we be humble enough to say clearly we're doing something wrong? Clearly we are doing something wrong. What is actually going on there? And I think we learned a little bit, obviously, with the Amish rhythms and wrapping them up in a story, but I think there's some more to be said with a Jewish family. So let's look at Jewish culture real quick. So does anyone know how many Jewish people are on earth right now? Like average, like how many people, Jewish people, the population? 15 million, okay? 15 million. So the percentage, this is, I'm struggling at this. The percentage of that, what is it? How many people on earth are there? What, 7 billion? What's the percentage of basically Jewish people to the earth's population? I did on my calculator just two seconds ago. 0.2%. Okay, can we just say that's statistically insignificant? right? Meaning they're so small, they should not have any type of major impact on the world or culture, correct? That's just, they're statistically insignificant. Any economics class 101 would tell you the exact same thing. Here's what's interesting. You want to know some really crazy stats? How many Nobel prizes have been given to Jewish people in history? And we're talking every category, science, math, physics, etc. What are the percentage that Jewish people actually receive the Nobel prizes? 30 to 40%. Okay. That is brutal, by the way, too, my handwriting. Anyone else loving it? Okay. Pulitzer Prizes. So the best people with words that we have ever seen in our entire life. What's the percentage? You want to take a guess? 25 to 30%. Okay. Okay. What about patents? Every single patent that has ever been filed, what's the percentage that have been given to Jewish people? 40 to 50%. By every measure, by every measure of cultural impact, they are completely, completely disproportional to their actual population, right? To the point that's actually unbelievable. And they prove it over and over again in every single domain of life. And so this is actually so interesting and so statistically lopsided that actually millions of dollars have been tried to, re to like been thrown at this problem to research it. Why? How do they do that? What is going on? Scientists, psychologists, sociologists, this has been studied actually over and over and over again, how they can have such an enormous impact for how tiny they are in regards to the proportion of the world's population. And what's fascinating is every single one comes back to the same thing. Every single study comes back 
back to the very, very same thing. And here's exactly what it says. What is the secret of Jewish people that allows them to be unbelievably prolific as enormous contributors to human progress with unbelievably strong marriages and families, right? Just like us in this room, strong marriages and families, everyone comes back to the same, one, same answer. No one in all of culture or human history has a higher view of rhythms that form and administer an identity formed around a story than Jewish people today, specifically around their view of the table. The table is everything to them and they use it. Do you use your table metaphorically, but also physically? Do you actually, actually gather around a place and form a story and an identity and a narrative and a rhythm, right? Do you actually do that in your marriage? It's deeply, deeply important. Here's another question. All of Jewish people's highest holy moments, meaning their holidays, the places that they really celebrate, the big bang out parties every year, where do those happen? Do they happen in the synagogue? No. Where do they happen? In the home. Where in the home? At the table. What happens at the table? The dad tells a story. That's it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about another one of this week's sponsors, and that is Brooklyn. And you guys know Brooklyn, and we love them. They're a longtime sponsor of the show, and they like to say that you spend a third of your life in your sheets. I probably spend more because I sleep a lot and I nap as well. So it's time for a bedding upgrade, they like to say. Um, they're five-star hotel sheets, uh, but not with the five-star luxury pricing, which is what I love. They've been named the winner of the best of online sheets and bedding category by Good Housekeeping. They have 35,000 plus five-star reviews, which is really amazing. Uh, I love the story too. They were founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife, Vicky and Rich. And their mission, like I said, is to make five-star hotel quality sheets more affordable and easy to order luxury sheets without the luxury markup. And they don't just feel great. They look great too. You can mix and match like 25 plus different colors and patterns. I love them and they're the best and they're the most comfortable sheets we've ever slept in. And so now it's time for your upgrade. So they want to hook you guys up. They're giving you guys an exclusive offer. So get to get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code real at brooklinen.com. And they're so confident. I love this in their sheets and their product and their comforters and their towels that you get a lifetime warranty. So the only way to get 10% off your first order and free shipping is to use promo code real at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code real. That's it. Again, where's our highest ones? Mm, Easter Sunday in a big room, right? Christmas service, and that's fine. That's fine, but we have to be anchored in our homes. We have to be anchored in our homes, and we have to tell a good story over the long period of time for our marriages and for our children. We have to actually do that because this is what actually happens and this is how it actually happens. They are given an identity wrapped in a story around a rhythm. Back to what I said a few minutes ago of we're one of the most meaningless cultures ever in all of human history. One of these reasons is why. Do you know we're also one of the only cultures that have, that have completely taken out rites of passages? Right? Like we're one of the only people that actually don't do any type of markers on any type of point in your life besides kind of really flimsy small ones like, oh, here's your driver's license right? We don't actually give them any meaning. That's really interesting. And actually another person I read that studied this with the, the Jewish culture had a really fascinating point. He said, it's not really rocket science. One of the reasons they're so prolific is because they have a head start. And what do you mean by that? Because at age 13, Jewish kids have already been given an identity formed in a rhythm around a story. They've been told who they are, 
whose they are and what purpose of life is. And so then at 13 and 14, they're already going out and moving on. They're already innovating. They're already creating. They're already super engaged with culture and doing all these different things and starting businesses, seriously. And they're also treated as an adult in a rough way around 13 or 14. What are we doing at 13? Playing Call of Duty. No, seriously, because we have no rites of passage and we actually don't create that, 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 that meshing network, that identity formed around a story at the table in our home, then we have 29-year-old 29 29 boys who are still playing video games. We've never actually told them they can move on. You can keep going. Why? Because we never told them who they were. We never gave them a bigger story. We never gave them an identity. We just gave them a bunch of facts. We're really, really good in the West at giving people a bunch of facts. We're really bad about giving them an identity formed around a story. And the facts don't help when you ask the big questions of who am I? Why am I here? That's something you gotta feel in your gut and that comes from story. We are story creatures, right? It's why you can probably remember every single movie you've seen, but you can barely remember the sermon you heard last week. And don't worry, I won't be offended. You can say the same thing in a week from now about mine, okay? Because we are story creatures. We're created for narrative, to live in it, to see it, to breathe it, and to be in it. So I'm just saying, what would it look like if we actually let our marriages and our families be that? What if we were actually a global enterprise that was full of kingdom cells of marriages at tables giving people stories, giving them an identity in Jesus, saying this is truly who you are, that he died for you, that he rose again, and that you actually create daily, weekly, yearly rhythms that actually allow you to hang your life on that and actually infuse your life with meaning and actually give you the depth and the richness you were meant to have. I'll end with a couple practical examples. Let's see if this works again. Nope, new slide, can, I, can we go, there we go. Is that, is that you again or is that me? I don't know, okay. So I'm gonna try to, let's try to end with making this really practical, okay? So let's look at, there's a couple ideas that we've done in a daily, oops, daily, weekly, yearly way. And take what you want, you know, spit out the bones, say it can be good, it can be bad. The thing about rhythms, guys, is we need to implement things again that we can hang our hat on and hang our life on with meaning, but you gotta experiment, you gotta iterate, and then you gotta keep building one brick at a time. You don't build a house just by setting the house there. You'll get overwhelmed, you'll get burned out. You just put one brick at a time, get better and get better incrementally. And so the daily rhythms, I like to call these the ones of micro meaning, okay? Every marriage needs daily rhythm, daily ritual. Another way to put this is the daily ritual is oxygen. Okay, here's what I mean by that. No one takes a breath and then goes, oh my goodness, that was the best thing ever. Does anyone do that? No, why? Because it's just a thing you do kind of every couple seconds that you need to what? Survive or you'll die. So the daily rhythms are not meant to just blow your face off with truth and just be so incredible and amazing and you just faint because the Holy Spirit's that awesome. He is, it might happen some days, probably not, right? The daily ones are just breaths of life meant to infuse you so that you can actually stay alive. So you can have those things of micro-meaning, small bite-sized ways in micro-meaning. And here's a couple ways we do this. We do this in three ways. All of these take collectively about four minutes in a 24-hour cycle, okay? The first one is every single day, me and Alyssa wake up, and before we do anything, am I, is this like an eraser? Am I good? There we go. This is like so fancy. I went to public school. I did not remember having this. This is probably why this is all like, yeah, okay. This is incredible. I love it. Can I get one, please? Okay. Um, how can I serve you? Okay, how can I serve you? So first thing me and Alyssa do that we wake up every single day, and before we do anything, before we do any work, we look at each other and we just say, how can I serve you today? How can I serve you today? Five days out of the week, we just say, oh, nothing, love you, you know, appreciate it. Two days out of the week, we actually give something to each other that actually is helpful, but it's the cadence and the rhythm of that question sets up the entire day to say, my day is to serve you. 
and in mutual service, that'll be a really beautiful marriage, right? And so it's a tiny, tiny thing. One question, one question. The other one is what I like to call the breakfast benediction. Now, this is a really fun one that we do where me and my kids, um, I can, this is like, guys, guys, look, that is horrendous. Okay, um, okay, um, but here, let's do it. So everyone take your hands, put them up like this, put them up like this, and you're just gonna repeat after me and at the campuses or the locations, you can also do the same thing. So it goes like this, I'm not what I do. Oh, come on, actually say it like you mean it. I'm not what I have. I'm not what people say about me. I'm the beloved of God. It's who I am. No one can take it from me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to hurry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. Amen. And so that's all it is right there. And every single morning before we start breakfast, me and the kids, we do that every single morning. And we put our hands up like that as an act of receiving, saying, God, this is your truth. This is your story. This is my identity. I'm going to receive it every single day before I move on. And then we do this fun little thing where I basically give the kids an M&M after we finish because I tried to kind of tailor it after the verse where it says like the law, uh, the law is sweet as honey on my lips, but we tried honey and I have toddlers and it was chaotic and messy. So we moved to... M&Ms, and here's why, because I want them to know that God's truth is sweet. So many times we make God's truth a buzzkill in the home or even with each other in our marriage. Like, no, it is not this overbearing thing. It's, it's sweet. It's for our flourishing. It's for our goodness. It's for our blessing. Do you actually believe that? Because if David can say it, then we should be able to say it too, especially with Jesus, that he is sweet that he nourishes us, that he feeds us, that he blesses us, that his design for the world is a treasure and a delight. And so we do that because I want that actual, and again, back to the Jewish and Amish people, they're amazing at injecting real life, physical, tangible things with the meaning. That's little stuff like that. So now when my daughter's 25 and she has a white M&M, right? Or because that's what we get white because it looks a little prettier on the table. Anyways, um, when she gets a white M&M when she's 25, I bet she'll probably think of that little benediction, right? And at the end of the day, I don't think every single morning again is going to be like, oh, this is the most life-changing thing in the world. No, but if our kids get in a hard spot at 18, at 20, at 25, at 50, I want them to have so deep in their bones, they know that they're not what they do, they're not what they have, and they can trust Jesus and share his love with the world. So to me, I wanna get it deep into their bones, and the daily ritual is the way to do that. Another way we do it, and I'm not gonna write it because the handwriting's so bad, I need to take a break, is pray before bed, as simple as that. And guys, again, it's the oxygen. We don't expect anything from that that's huge. We don't, we're not trying to have no revival in our bedroom, right? Unless you call something else revival, then at 10 p.m., okay? We're not trying to do that. Anyone, <laughs> where, what am I doing with my life? Okay. Um, but we just pray. It's just a cap on the day. We thank Jesus and we thank him for who he is. And then one thing we actually do before that that I forgot at dinner is we actually go around the table every single night and we have a chalkboard on our dinner table or our dinner wall and we, have to, we each have to name one thing we're thankful for that God showed up in that day or something that he uh, uh, blessed us with that day or just one thing we're thankful for in that day. And it's really cool to see like 100 things lined up, right? And to see 50 things and to see intangible evidence of God's grace and goodness. And so it's, uh, um, it's little stuff like that, guys, but you have to have those daily things because here's the thing, you're already doing that with your phone and with your work and all these things. They're just more less meaningless. They're less meaningful. You already have a ton of daily rituals. You already have a ton of oxygen, right? It's just probably not the best air that you're actually breathing. And so try to breathe better air. Another one is weekly. And, and one way we call this that was really big is we call it kind of the, the family meal. 
And another way to put this metaphorically is the steak. I think every wake, every week needs a high moment. You don't have steak every day, all three meals. Steak is a special meal. Steak is awesome. And you kind of like see that, right? As like a kind of a more higher point in the week. Your marriage needs a high point in the week, right? It's sad, but again, in culture, it's always something else. It's the Friday night at the Clemson game, which we're going to tonight. I'm so stoked. But it's going to be a high point, right? Or it's the, um, you know, if you're in college, it's the Friday night down at the frat house. Or it's a work party. Or it's maybe it's Sunday. Or maybe it's something you do during the week. But if, if I could ask you, what's your peak moment every seven days, what would you say? That's just a fascinating discussion. Can you actually craft and make something that actually serves your marriage as the peak moment of the, the week? That's the goal. It's actually craft and create a peak moment for your week that your family and your marriage can hang meaning on. And so what we do is we call it the family meal or another, um, what we actually really do is we kind of honor a true 24-hour Sabbath and kind of a, um, a day of celebration, a day of rest, a day of partying, a day of delight. But we kick it off Friday night um, and it's a bummer, it's a, we missed it, missed it yesterday um, because we're traveling. But essentially what it is, it's just this, we, we just make it a more peak moment. We get out the nice cloth napkins. We get out the silver. We get out the nice stuff. We get out the placemats. I have these little water bottles that I made for the kids where I put popcorn seeds in it and then put a lid on it. And so then they can just, they, and so what they do is they run around the table to signify it's the, the, the beginning of the day of rest. And they just, you know, and running around I'm like, this is not restful, but it's fun. Okay. Um, and they run around the table, like it's just little dumb stuff like that, but it creates this peak moment, right? And then we invite her, Alyssa's parents, my wife, live where we live, so we invite them over on Sabbath usually, and then we tell them to bring pictures or props because we want them to be kind of on the, on the, the main seat, we want them to be in the seat of honor, and so that night is they get to tell stories, they get to get questions asked, they get the spotlight, and so then they get, our kids get connected to that story. They get connected to that identity. And so our, my mother-in-law, she brings awesome stuff. She brought like her cheerleading uh, letterman's jacket patch from like high school and talked about high school. She brought her wedding cake topper. I don't know how she keeps all these things. Um, and she talked about her wedding day, like, you know, whatever, 30 something years ago or whatever. And so every single week they're getting injected with, this is your family, this is who you are, this is your story, this is where you came from. And that's what it's for. What's up, guys? I want to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Legacy Box, last sponsor of the week. And you guys know we love Legacy Box. They're awesome, and they're incredible, and they're right in line with what we talk about all the time on this podcast about capturing and keeping and preserving multi-generational stories and legacy. So what they do is they essentially digitize and preserve all of your old pictures, VHS tapes, home recordings, videos, um, etc. And it's really, really cool what they do, how they do it, and it's so, so well done and the cool part is you can save your family films and your photos from degrading or being lost forever even if you're unable to play some recordings because they don't have a, you don't have a vcr anymore they can digitize those um you get to experience the joy and the nostalgia of the glory days as they like to say and i what i love is we also have something very tangible to pass on which we really really care about so you send your legacy box filled with the home movies and pictures they do the rest they professionally digitize them uh, to give you a thumb drive a digital download or a dvd there's easy to follow instructions safety barcodes you receive all your recorded moments back along with perfectly preserved digital copies uh, they're amazing. Over 450,000 families have trusted Legacy Box in over a decade of experience, and all the work is done by hand right here in the U.S. And so there's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories. So visit, visit LegacyBox.com to get started. And plus, they're offering you guys an exclusive discount. So if you go to LegacyBox.com and use the code slash love, so LegacyBox.com slash love, you get 40% off your first order. So again, that's LegacyBox.com slash love, and you can save 40% today. I 
I gotta finish here soon, so I'll try to go fast. And I, I had more there, but sorry. Okay, yearly. Now, yearly is what I call the feast, right? Every, fa- every, oh, like, is it me or is it this? Okay, um, the feast. Um, like, come on, come on. Um, every marriage and family kind of needs their own holidays or their own traditions. That's another way to put it. You need like something like a wedding or a big old blowout party or whatever it is to celebrate your marriage and to celebrate your family. You need that, right? We have holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving and St. Patrick's Day and all those things. But again, I think those are like down here. We can do it more. We can elevate it more. Now, I'm not saying you have to honor the biblical holidays, but I think that we should at least be intrigued by those because those are the only place that God himself actually invented some from his own mind and heart. So we should at least pay attention, right? And to me, those seem actually really beautiful and amazing, specifically with Jesus in mind and what those stories were telling and how those connect us and how those actually get us into a place of meaning. And so do you actually have holidays that you celebrate as a marriage that you have actually crafted? You're in charge. Like so many of us have marriages and families by accident, do we not? We're in charge, Like you can craft and create the exact home and table and life and rhythms and cadence and holidays that you want. You have permission. And I think when I realized that, I just started going crazy. I don't know if my wife loves it or not, but I love it. You're in charge. You can create and cultivate those rhythms. Another thing we do, I'm nervous every time I have to write now, family summit, okay? And I think you can call this a marriage summit if you want to where basically we get away for two years, uh, two days, once a year. And we basically like, it's just like, it's, it's, here's the thing that really bothers me. I can't stand that businesses do a better job at looking at the year than a marriage and a family does. They have year end reviews. They have quarterly meetings. They set benchmarks. They set vision. They set goals. If you're just literally in the driver's seat with a blindfold on, that business will tank. Correct? That's so much, so many of us with our marriages and families, is it not? I think business actually should learn from marriage and family. And I think, business, I think marriage and family was actually God's first design for an organization. When God had a problem to solve, i.e. the multiplication and the population of the entire world and bringing his blessing into the earth, which is Genesis 1 and 2, what did he do? Did he make an app? No. Did he create a business? No. What did he do? He made a marriage. The way to solve the world's problems is a marriage. Not the only way, but that's certainly one of the first and biggest clear ways. When he wanted to solve the problem, it was a marriage through a family, through be fruitful and multiply. So what would it look like if we actually got away and talked and like kind of zoomed out and said, what are our goals? What are we trying to do? Where are we trying to go? We answer questions. We get a word for the year. We actually kind of talk about what has God taught us with the kids this year? What has God taught us about us? Tell the story and do all those different things. Um, and here's the thing. I had some more, but, I'll, but I'll, I'll end with these two examples. The reason this stuff is important, guys, and I alluded to it earlier, is because corporations are already doing this to you without you realizing it. Meaning everyone is already trying to get you to live in their rhythm. Does that make sense? Everyone's already trying to get you to buy into their story. There's a lot of stories out there. There's the consumeristic story. There's the individualistic story. There's the story with no purpose and no meaning. There's the story of rationale, which again, post-enlightenment, stuff of that, that that's the highest value. No, no, God gives a bigger and a better story. And so the reason this is important is because we have to actually resist all the ones that culture is already giving us. Like take Apple, for example. Apple, in my opinion, does a very good job of the daily, weekly, yearly rhythm. Daily, if they've created a way for you to basically want and desire what the second you wake up? Their product, right? They're one of the best daily rhythm people in the world because they basically have gotten us 
to basically make that the highest thing and the most important thing the minute we open our eyes. And they want us on it every single day and they have done it in a way where we actually do. The second thing is weekly, right? I think they do a really good job of a weekly rhythm where they know we never want people to put their phone down. So here's what we'll do. We'll actually make a lot of productivity apps so they can use it really well when they're working Monday through Friday. And we'll also do a bunch of entertainment apps so they can have a lot of fun and leisure and be filled and consume on the weekend. They're very good at crafting an actual rhythm so you never actually have to put it down. And yearly is the most obvious. What is Apple big on every single year? You can talk about the keynote or you can talk about when the new iPhone comes out, right? That sounds to me, and we actually treat it very much like a biblical holiday, do we not? Last time I checked, when a new iPhone comes out, what do you do? A lot of people, if you're crazy and kind of intense, you do what? You go to the store and you camp out for two days in front of it. Last time I checked, that sounds identical to a feast I've heard of called the Feast of Booths. Anyone else? Like literally it's the same holiday. It's just one's worshiping an iPhone and one's worshiping Yahweh. You're both camping in tents. You're both sacrificing. You're both submitting to another story and another ritual and another rhythm. Which one's actually giving you life and which one isn't? It's fascinating to me that we'll camp out for two days to get a new iPhone and spend $1,000, but we won't even think about spending $50 or $5 on crafting maybe a day of family story. A day of family identity. Like we have to actually get the priorities back in a row. We have to actually understand that so many of these things we're blindly submitting to when God says, what you're trying to actually do over there, I've already given you a better alternative version right here. This is what you're created for. This is what you want. This will give you more life. And I'll end with this example. When Jesus, the night before Jesus died and he wanted to communicate the biggest event in human history, i.e. the cross and the resurrection. He had one day left with his disciples. He'd been with them three days, I mean three years, and he had one day left, and he wanted to give them basically, like it's the, it's the last night, right? Like before he dies and resurrects, he wants to kind of cram everything into them and say, okay, here, here's it, here it is. Make sure you can kind of steward it and pass it on. So he's got one little segment left. What's he do? Does he get out the smart board? No. Does he give them a bunch of notes? Does he go super deep into theology of here's propitiation, here's atonement? Does he do all that? No, the last night before Jesus dies, he has one last moment to describe the biggest event in human history and what's he do? He eats. And what do they do when they eat? Where do they sit when they eat? At a table. What does he do at that table? He tells a story. Does he not? It's a future story. He says, hey, this is gonna happen but it's still a story. And then after he tells that story, what does he say and command them to do? Every time you do this, remember me. That sounds a lot like the word rhythm. An identity wrapped around a story at the table through rhythm. That's God's design and our marriage can bolster and can actually be activated in a really beautiful way if we would start living and dancing to that music. And that's what I wanna end with is God is playing that music and your marriage has the opportunity to step into that cadence. And there's no pressure, there's no burden. You have years and years and years to just put one brick on at a time. One brick on at a time. And maybe, hopefully, you might have a house when you die. Or you have a house you can actually pass on to your kids. Pass on generationally and they can add on. And it becomes this beautiful place of dwelling and of shalom and of Jesus' goodness and grace. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for, Lord, every single marriage in this room and at all the locations, Lord. And I just pray that you would just give us, every single one of us, Lord, the creative imagination to think about your story that's universal and the same, but how we can bring that into our home. 
how we can bring that into our marriage. How have you created us? What's our DNA? What are we like? And how can we inject that, preload that into daily, weekly, yearly ways that actually allow us to honor you better, worship you better, and then specifically give us more meaning and depth and richness that we're all looking for in a lot of other places. Jesus, we love you. So you know me, pray. Amen.